Big stories, big guests, the big picture. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge. Weekdays 1230 to 3, 770 CHQR. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Rob Breckenridge. On today's episode, who killed Barry and Honey Sherman? Two years later, the so-called billionaire murders remain unsolved. Also, a wild story from the world of cryptocurrency. Lawyers for a group of ripped-off clients want the body of a former exchange CEO to be exhumed. They're not convinced the guy's actually dead. Plus, a Global News exclusive story on a secret program that grants visas to war criminals and terrorists, if doing so is deemed to be in the national interest. The family and the police urge anyone who has reliable information regarding the murders, no matter how small or unimportant that information may seem, to please contact the police through their usual channels. It was December 15th, 2017, two years ago yesterday, uh, that Barry and Honey Sherman were found murdered inside their Toronto home. A uh, very wealthy family, very prominent family. And so a, a real mystery, why they would be targeted. Who killed the Shermans? And two years later, we still don't know. So with the uh, anniversary of these murders yesterday, Toronto police holding a press conference today uh, to urge anybody who may know anything to come forward. Now, the other side of this is the fact that there have been uh, parallel investigations going on here, public and private investigations, is what police said about the status of those. The police investigation has been and continues to be active and ongoing. The work of the private investigative team hired by the family at the outset has been completed. So why has this case been so difficult to to solve? What have we learned about it in the last two years? Are we any closer to to solving this mystery? Well, we have learned some things along the way. Someone who has followed all of this very closely is Kevin Donovan. He's an investigative reporter with the Toronto Star, the star.com, also author of the book on this case, The Billionaire Murders. Kevin, thank you so much for joining us here. Welcome to the program. Thanks for having me on again. Uh, So anything stand out to you today in in what police are saying about the status of their investigation or the status of this, this private investigation? Well, uh, yeah, a lot of things. This is the first time, uh, shockingly, that I've seen in the two years that the police have themselves asked for information from the public. Uh, previously, it's been the family through their private investigation team. In fact, they held a major news conference uh, just over a year ago uh, announcing a $10 million re- reward for information and saying all the tips should come uh, to the family and we'll pass them on to police. What has happened today is the police say, the reward's still out there, send us the tips. And they've also asked anybody who submitted a tip earlier to the private team, would you please resubmit that to us? So why would they wait until now to do that? Uh, that is an excellent question. We uh, we all in the media had lots of questions today and didn't get a lot of uh, answers. Uh, I can tell you that there's been a... A very uh, uneasy relationship between the Sherman family's investigators and the Toronto police. They, they just haven't really got, they haven't gotten along. And, and I think the police feel that they are, you know, they're mandated by law to, to investigate crimes. And they did not uh, entirely appreciate having uh, a private team going around and interviewing people. Uh, and I'm sure they probably are not 
pleased that I go around and interview people as well, but that's, yeah. I think that's my job. Uh, but it, it wasn't until about a month ago that the uh, family, uh, and it's, not, it's unclear which parts of the family, but the family finally said, we don't need this anymore. And I, I suspect, although I have no confirmation yet, that the police had said to the family, could, could you just, just enough with the private investigation team? Because what the police have, have said to me, and in previous times I've talked to them, is that every time the private team sends them something, they have to check that out. And that slows them down. Well, how did how did there come to be a private investigation in the first place? Then does that speak to to frustration with you know, on the family's part with the police investigation? Yeah, and I'm actually doing a story in that for for tomorrow. But just uh, in, in brief, uh, the the family uh, was upset uh, within the first few hours that this story was emerging that it was a murder suicide. And they didn't know what to do. Uh, this you know, Barry and Honey uh, were gone, and so they talked to, talked amongst themselves. And then uh, somebody suggested to them, and this is subject to my story tomorrow. Uh, somebody suggested that they should hire a private detective, and and they ended up hiring Brian Greenspan, who's a very well known Canadian criminal lawyer. They hired him simply because. Barry had once hired him for a case years before, and then it all started steamrolling. What I think was really valuable in the early days of the private investigators is that they hired a a top forensic pathologist to do a second set of autopsies, and that's really what made the case uh, switch from a murder-suicide to a double murder. And I think after that, there were diminishing returns for, in my opinion, diminishing returns, uh, the work of the of the private uh, investigators. So they, the private detectives, were very critical of the work done by the police. As they said the police missed fingerprints in the house, missed palm prints, failed to notice open doors, things like that. Right, and I think there's been that sense that, you know, that, that part of the reason why two years later we still have no idea who, who killed these two is is because of those mistakes, those missteps in the, the early part of this investigation. Yeah, I think that that the first, from I got involved in this only about three weeks in, but I can tell you that the first six weeks the police were really working under the, the, the very strong theory that it was a murder-suicide, and so... They didn't do the things that they normally would do. They did seize, for example, video surveillance information, uh, data, but they didn't look at it for six weeks. Uh, there are a lot of, uh, so uh, December 15th is when the bodies were discovered of 2017. January 26th, the police announced that they're investigating this as a double homicide. And there's quite a few interviews that take place right on January 26th and for the week after. That's when they really went into overdrive. And so they would have missed, uh, you, they, we hear, you know, if we watch TV, you know, that the first 48 hours is very important, very critical uh, in a case. And they, they certainly missed that. In fact, they missed six weeks. Can you talk about the story you had a few days ago, um, Kevin? You reported some kind of eerie and disturbing details about the, the murders themselves or the murder scene, that apparently uh, there, there were a couple of life-size basically human-shaped art figures in the home, uh, in fact, near the crime scene, and that it appears as though the victims here were, were left in poses similar to those pieces of art? Yeah, when I got a hold of those uh, the photos uh, about three weeks ago now, uh, I, I found it quite chilling. 
because I was not aware that the the Shermans had these these life size sculptures. I, I heard that they had them. I didn't think they looked so so realistic. And they're a male and female. They're made out of uh, junk by a, quite a well known uh, American artist who who made them in the seventies. And, the, and Honey loved them. Uh, she uh, uh, moved them from house to house, uh, and finally they ended up in a in a basement room. Um, uh, just near the rec room in the basement of the of the home, uh, not too far from where the pool is. What struck me was that uh, I'd heard that Barry Sherman had one leg crossed over the other, and when I saw the pictures, that's what uh, is happening with the male sculpture. He has one leg uh, crossed over the other and, and is in a seated uh, position. So uh, I asked the police, did you look at this? Uh, you know, check these sculptures out. Uh, they they said they can't talk about anything related to the case. I did interview the sculptor who lives in Philadelphia, and he's not heard from the police. So uh, there's just there's too many times in this case where where I I think the police have have uh, made the obvious phone call and they haven't, and they've got uh, a fair staff, and I just got me. Yeah, which is not not encouraging. But I mean, it, it's it seems like a very odd thing to do. Does that in any way? Th- fit into to any of the working theories here? Well, uh, my theory has always been that this is not a case of international in, intrigue. Uh, and in fact, the, the inspector was asked today, is this a hit? And he said, no, I, I wouldn't call it that. I wouldn't go down that road, he said, but he didn't say anything more after that. Uh, I, I've always believed that uh, whoever did this, and I don't know who did this, but whoever did this uh, knew, knew the Shermans, uh, knew they would... Uh, uh, didn't really have anything to do at that Wednesday evening, knew on the Thursday that nobody would be uh, coming into their house. So, somebody had to know that. And and also, the, the crime of strangulation, I'm told, is more of a personal crime. Uh, Barry Sherman used to say to people, if they want to take me out, they can just Somebody can just shoot me when I'm leaving my office. He had a very fatalistic sense of humor. and, and But that's true. And, and then the other issue is, why both of them? Uh, honey Sherman it doesn't make it doesn't make any sense is it your sense that police have at this point a working theory well I know they do because I the detective who uh, it's part of this process where we're trying to get some documents unsealed related to the case uh, I have uh, both in April this year and October asked the detective who's in charge of all these warrants uh, do you have a working theory yes he says we do do you have uh, an idea of what happened? Yes, we do. Do you have a suspect? Can't answer that question. Well, in my opinion, you can't have a working theory and an idea of what happened unless you have a suspect. But they won't answer it. And we asked them that again today at the press conference, and the inspector wouldn't bite. He wouldn't say whether they did or didn't. Well, that's interesting. So in terms then of, of being close to to making an arrest or identifying somebody, I, I guess it's really hard to say where they're at. Yeah, I, I think that uh, this is—it's months rather than years. I, I think that. Well, I know that the, the detective I made reference to—he said that they are quote cautiously optimistic that they're they're you know getting closer. And I think what happened today was 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 actually part of that. I think they they needed to, uh, for legal reasons, uh, make it clear that it was now simply a police, uh, or not simply, but it was now clearly a police investigation. 
and uh, and 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 I think police also are always con- concerned these days that a defense lawyer will say, "You didn't check out all these leads." Yeah. And I think what they're doing now by opening it up to the public for, let's say, several months, is just to do that to see what's going to come in, and then uh, I, I think in in twenty. Uh, 20, uh, which is not that far away, that, that there will be uh, uh, a, a resolution in terms of uh, arrest or arrest. Well, more details on today's, uh, today's developments, the star.com, and of course the book, The Billionaire Murders, The Mysterious Deaths of Barry and Honey Sherman. Uh, Kevin, thank you so much for joining us here today. Really appreciate it. Thanks for taking the time. All right, all the best. Kevin Donovan, investigative uh, journalist with the Toronto Star, the star.com, also author of the book, The Billionaire Murders, The Mysterious Deaths of Barry and Honey Sherman. Billionaires, philanthropists, socialites, and murder victims. So it, it was quite shocking. You know, the fact that they were targeted, murdered, the way in which they were murdered. Obviously, Barry Sherman, of course, he was uh, chair and CEO of Appletax. A lot of theories that this had something to do with the, the cutthroat world of the pharmaceutical industry. This was some kind of business deal gone wrong. Well, there's some international intrigue, as, as Kevin alluded to. There have been some theories around that. Uh, Kevin's working theory is that this involves money and that the uh, two likely knew their killer or killers. In terms of what the police working theory is at this point, again, we're not totally sure. All right, cryptocurrency. Like for some smart investors, it's uh, been a rather profitable invention and certainly it's it's remarkable in terms of how it has really transformed the idea of secure online transactions so there's a lot of potential obviously uh, when it comes to cryptocurrency but there's also the potential for fraud and wrongdoing and i mean that's the other side of of the cryptocurrency story there is a remarkable story unfolding uh, around the aftermath of what was once uh, described as Canada's largest uh, cryptocurrency exchange, Quadriga CX. And the unraveling of this really began with the uh, death of the company's CEO, who died of complications of Crohn's disease following a trip to India in December 2018. Or did he? Now, Gerald Cotton was his name. He ran the exchange from his home outside of Halifax. He was the company's CEO and sole director. He was also the only one who had access to the so-called cold wallets that were supposed to hold his customers' cryptocurrency. More than 76,000 unsecured creditors, virtually all of them Quadriga CX clients, came forward to claim that they are owed more than $200 million dollars. Now, the latest twist in all of this is that the lawyers representing those users are asking the RCMP to exhume the body of the fund's founder and conduct an autopsy to determine whether it is him, to determine whether, in fact, this guy is dead. Well, joining us to talk more about this case, very pleased to welcome to the program Dr. Alfred uh, Lehar uh, with the Haskins School of Business at the University of Calgary. He's an associate professor there and specializes uh, in issues around cryptocurrency. Alfred, thank you so much for joining us here. Welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. It's great to be on the program. So these cryptocurrency exchanges, companies like Quadriga CX, what, what exactly do they do? They offer users to buy cryptocurrency buy and trade cryptocurrency um, by transferring in 
regular Canadian dollars or U.S. dollars or similar fiat currency and trade them in exchange for several cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin or Ethereum or Litecoin or other ones. So if someone wishes to buy Bitcoin or different cryptocurrency, they, they need to go through one of these exchanges then? Yes, they need to go through one of these exchanges and convert their regular currency into these cryptocurrencies, and then they can either keep them in the exchange for future trading or transfer them out of the exchange into a private wallet or uh, a private place where they can store this cryptocurrency safely uh, or transfer them to another crypto exchange to trade on this other exchange. Right. So then the idea that even though I've, I've purchased some, some Bitcoin through this, this currency exchange, um, even once I, I technically own it, does, does that exchange still hold it, basically? Yes, that is the unfortunate aspect of this fairly unregulated industry is that the name that these Bitcoin, when you buy them on the exchange, are still held in the name of the exchange. Now, if you buy stocks in comparison to a broker, very often the stocks are also held in the name of the broker and then an internal record that the broker uh, tells everybody that you're the legal owner of these shares, but these the stock uh, brokers are highly regulated and there is not, uh, there are not many instances of fraud. This is a, uh, a well-established industry with good regulations, and there we can be sure that uh, actually the stocks that you buy are really there and that you own them. But in the crypto exchange business, this is very unregulated. There is no uh, audits, no separation of uh, often of user funds and exchange funds, and so we see that clients are at risk when the exchange defaults for one reason or the other reason. And then they find out, like in Quadriga's case, that the money is not there. Right. Uh, so if we assume then that the Gerald Cotton really did die, and he's the one who had access to all of this, what, what is the status then of all of this cryptocurrency? So unfortunately, uh, the, this exchange was run not in the best possible way, but there are safeguards in place to to protect users' funds in the case of an accidental death of a key uh, executive. So um, when Mr. Cotton died, he was the only one who had possession of a lot of the private keys that are necessary to access the funds that are owned by the exchange. And it there was not a lot of very good bookkeeping at the exchange. So at the moment, uh, the trustee is trying to figure out how much money is actually there, where the money went, who owns what, who is owed what. So these are all, uh, this is all not very easy to, to understand because the exchange had very bad bookkeeping uh, in place. And therefore, yeah. there's a lot of uncertainty here. Well, and, and obviously, Dano, there's a, a suggestion or at least a question raised as to whether this individual might have faked his own death. I mean, as a hypothetical, how easy would it be then for someone who has control over all of these accounts, access to all of this cryptocurrency, uh, to fake his death and, and then cash in after the fact? Well, we had 
from the trustees' report, we know that there has been some uh, movements of money out of the Quadriga uh, exchange into other crypto exchanges or into other accounts that were either controlled by Mr. Cotton or um, by other entities or corporations. And it is not so it's not totally obvious where this money went and why this money was transferred. So hypothetically, it could be possible that this money was kind of set aside uh, to um, to be used in the future. Okay. Uh, you know, it's interesting because I, I think part of the appeal of cryptocurrency is that it's unregulated. But do these kinds of situations illustrate a need to have some kind of rules in place for how these exchanges operate? Yes, and I think that there is a lot of uh, uh, exchanges out there who are trying to play by the rules and try to establish a legitimate and well-run and safe environment for users to trade these cryptocurrencies. And I would imagine that these uh, places are somewhat keen to have uh, more regulation in place uh, because that allows them to uh, convey to the public that there is a credible commitment to make sure that that users can trust the exchange and therefore will trade more, which will benefit the exchange. Similar to the traditional financial sector, we also see that uh, banks to some degree are not all opposed to regulation because it makes the system safer, it keeps unsafe players out of the ecosystem, and it establishes the trust that is necessary to run uh, a bank or a financial institution. All right, very interesting. Dr. Lehar, we'll leave it there. Appreciate your insight on all of this, and thanks for making some time for us here. Thank you very much for having me. All right, all the best. That is uh, Alfred Lehar. He's uh, an associate professor at the Haskins School of Business, University of Calgary, uh, focusing his uh, research on cryptocurrency issues. So his thoughts on this Quadriga CX situation. There is some shady stuff that's already been found. For example, a report by Ernst & Young found that Cotton moved customers' money into his own personal accounts, likely traded fake currency deposits for real cryptocurrency, and inflated revenue figures. Ernst & Young were able to recoup $32 million in cash and either recover or locate $1 million in cryptocurrency as part of the bankruptcy process. Another $12 million in property purchased by Cotton and his widow, Jennifer Robertson, is subject to an asset preservation order. It's interesting that the couple, who did not have sources of income other than the funds from Quanriga, had purchased a number of assets over the last few years, including 16 properties in Nova Scotia, a private jet, luxury vehicles, and a personal sailing vessel. Robertson has agreed to disclose all assets and not to sell or dispose of any property subject to the preservation order without the consent of Ernst & Young. Cotton reportedly did not file income tax returns for 2014, 2015, or 2017. And when he did file taxes, he did not claim income from Quadriga. So, some weird stuff going on there. And I guess it's convenient, in some respects, that he died uh, in uh, December of last year, and that's that. So you would think on the surface that if someone were deemed to be inadmissible to Canada because of national security concerns, that that would be kind of the final word on the matter. But not always. 
Uh, and it brings us to a really interesting uh, scoop today from Global News. Uh, details of what has uh, up until now been a secret program uh, that allows for certain high-profile foreign nationals who would otherwise be barred from entering the country due to national security concerns, war crimes, human rights violations, or organized crime to be granted special public policy entry visas so long as it is in Canada's national interest. Now, it's hard to see what that national interest would be in these kinds of cases, but I guess on the other hand, it's easy to see maybe why this program was kept hush-hush. A lot of questions about all of this, but joining us to talk more about it is uh, Global National reporter Brian Hill, who broke the story today. More details at globalnews.ca. Brian, thanks for joining us here. Welcome to the program. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Well, your story talks about an example of somebody who was indeed found to be inadmissible to Canada because of uh, national concerns. This was someone who was a high-ranking member of the Egyptian military uh, during the time in which uh, the uh, government was overthrown back in 2014, yet it ended up with a, a valid visitor visa anyway. So tell us more about this this program you've uncovered here. Sure. So uh, as you pointed out, the program essentially grants entry visas to people who would otherwise be barred from entering the country so long as they are quote-unquote high profile or or rather so long as they're rejecting those visas could pose problems for Canada's national interests, I guess, maybe is a better way to put it. But uh, we've, uh, in the course of exploring this particular case, the case of General um, Zaw, a former Brigadier General in the Egyptian Army, we've uncovered uh, internal government documents that really uh, provide uh, details and shine light on a policy that before this, uh, almost no one knew of and, and very little was, was publicly available about. And so really uh, what it does is it says, well, okay, we understand there are potentially security concerns, national security concerns, potential for war crimes, terrorism, human rights abuses, etc. cetera. Uh, but uh, because we think rejecting that visa could have broader implications for our country's interests abroad, we're going to let that person in. So in this person's case, the, the concern was that if we, we kept him out, that might affect Canada's relationship with Egypt or Egypt's military. Right, exactly. So, so it, 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 what's one of the really fascinating things that we've learned here is that this program, as I say, which almost nothing was known about uh, before we, we discovered these documents, um, is that even for the applicants, the program is a secret uh, in many cases. So um, it's not entirely clear. In fact, it seems very likely that Mr. Zar, General Zar, was unaware that he'd even been given this special exemption. And so you know, when he applied to come to visit Canada to see family, um, his his uh, his application would have then been flagged at the embassy in in Cairo, Canadian embassy in Cairo. It was then sent for security screening. There was then a determination or a recommendation saying that yes, we believe this this person would be inadmissible um, due to national security concerns. Um, but then an official from the Department of National Defense in Ottawa, who had been made aware of this file wrote a letter to Immigration Canada, to his counterpart at Immigration Canada, and said, we understand these these concerns. However, we still think he should be let in because we have military operations ongoing in, the, in Egypt, in the Sinai Peninsula, and we don't want to upset our relationship with the Egyptian military. So who makes the decision on this ultimately? 
Right, and that, that, so the, the decision on who, on whether or not these visas are granted is made at the assistant deputy minister level and above, so the, pretty much the uppermost levels of Immigration Canada at the bureaucratic level. Um, and uh, the, the, the decision on whether or not to issue a na- what's called a national interest letter, in this case was, it was written by the Department of National Defense, is also made at the assistant deputy minister level or above. So we're talking about the uppermost most uh, levels of the bureaucracy uh, within government departments. These letters can also be requesting that uh, security concerns are waived can also be written by ambassadors, so Canadian ambassadors abroad. Um, But ultimately, the decision on whether or not a visa is issued is made by the uh, uh, top-level bureaucrats within Immigration Canada. Exactly how they decide, though, who gets these visas is is unclear still, because the government documents we've obtained don't provide that level of detail, and the government refuses to answer any specific questions about the policy, how these decisions are made, who has been granted the visas, what reasons they were deemed inadmissible in the first place, um, you know, and what, if any, calculations are made where you're weighing risk against national interest. All of that, we don't know. <laughs> Do we know how many of these have been issued? It's one of the few things we do know um, in, in, the, in the very, I guess, um, broad sense. We know that 3,000 of these visas have been issued since the policy was initiated back in 2010 under the Harper uh, administration, uh, Harper government. Um, and, uh, you know, in the early years, um, the, the numbers of visas that were issued were very low. We we're talking just a handful and then maybe dozens from 2011, 2012, um, but then um, the number increased, and by 2015, in that year, Canada issued more than a thousand of these visas. And you know, so the, the, between 2011 and 2017, as I say, more than 3,000 of them were issued. But we do not know uh, the countries that these people came from. We also don't know the reasons for the inadmissibility, or essentially, what security concerns work. What, what concerns is the government? essentially brushing to the side, we don't know because the government refuses to tell us. So these are visitor visas, right? So presumably then these these individuals are simply coming for, what, a a vacation in Canada? (laughs) What what, what do we attribute that to? Yeah. Yeah. So this this is the interesting thing. I mean, the program is not established entire uh, specifically for uh, uh, for official business, right? So it's not like we're saying, okay, uh, you know, General X from Country Y or or this government official from this country is coming here for an official sort of peace talk, maybe or something like that, right? Like I think people could understand if it's something like this. But right. these visas actually allow people to come to work, visit, study. In Canada, so in this particular case, General Zaw and his wife initially applied uh, for their visas with the intention of visiting family in Brampton, Ontario. There was nothing official about it; it was purely personal, and uh, and so you know the visa was issued uh, regardless, right, uh, on the basis that. To refuse this man uh, a visa could embarrass the Egyptian army and in turn damage Canada's relationship with the Egyptian army. But then he went on to make a, a refugee claim, didn't he? He did, and that's why we know about this. Right. So, you know, the interesting thing about it is that um, had General Zaw simply come to Canada 
visited his family and then returned, uh, we would never have known. And in fact, he would may never have known that the government of Canada had concerns about the, his membership in the Egyptian army. Um, and it was only after he made this uh, asylum claim that the issues were brought to 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 the fore, or to the to the attention of to to Mr. Zaw and, and to to us now, and that is because the government decided, well, hold on a second. You came here on this special visa. You'd been given exemption to come here. We had national security concerns. We exempted you from those. But that was on the basis that you were coming here temporarily. Right. Now you want to stay permanently. And the government said, no, no, that's not okay. And so they actually launched an effort to bar him from making an asylum claim on the grounds that he was inadmissible to Canada precisely for the exact same reasons that had been flagged by Canadian security officials before he was even given his initial visitor visa. So the government's not saying much at all about this, but you did get some reaction from one high-profile immigration lawyer, someone who specializes in human rights law and national security cases. Uh, Lauren Waldman is his name. What is he saying about all of this? Uh, he, he's, I, I think he, the word appalled would be an accurate way to describe yeah. um, his his. <laughs> you know his reaction to all of this or he had never seen these internal government documents before uh he he said that uh, this this shroud of secrecy that surrounds this program is an insidious example he, he used the word insidious uh example of um of uh of, of secrecy government secrecy he's very concerned that these decisions are made by bureaucrats who are not accountable to the public, um, who who people don't know who they are. He's also concerned that there's no independent oversight. So yes, there is a review process that's taken that that is is undertaken every time one of these visas is issued, where they you know they look at the security risks, they look at the you know recommendations from security officials, Canadian security officials, but. You know, ultimately, that balancing or the weighing of national interest versus security risk, how that process is done, um, it's all secret. And 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 uh, Lauren Waldman is very concerned about that. He says it's it's concerning, it's undemocratic, and he uh, thinks that the government really needs to think hard about whether this policy should even exist. And if they really believe that it should, then uh, there needs to be independent oversight, he says, of, of how these decisions are made and whether or not they're reasonable. Quite a story indeed. Much more at uh, globalnews.ca. More on Global National tonight. Brian, thank you so much for joining us here today. Appreciate it. My pleasure. Thank you. All right. That is uh, Brian Hill, uh, Global News, uh, Global National reporter, uh, bringing this story today, which he says only came to light because this Egyptian uh, general in question here had uh, decided that, it, you know, nice place to visit. Maybe he'd want to stay and actually made a refugee claim. And at that point, then the government said, well, this visa we let you have, it's no longer in effect. And we actually now want you to leave. But this all came out as a result of that, that claim. So we have some raw numbers in terms of how many of these uh, visas have been granted, but all the specific circumstances, that's all under wraps. You know, maybe we've been lucky in a sense then that, that none of these individuals who have received these special visitor visas, uh, that none of them have actually done anything while they're here. I mean, just imagine the outrage then 
if the way in which we learned about this secret visa program was a result of somebody who had been deemed to be a possible security threat doing something that would justify that. Doing something to prove that indeed they were a national security threat. What the hell were they doing here in the first place? Thanks for downloading and listening to the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you find your podcast. You can also find me on Twitter at Rob Breckenridge. You can email me, Rob at 770CHQR.com. Talk to you next time. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge, starting at 1230 on News Talk 770 Calgary.